0: I think I'm doing those eyes. <laughs> I think I'm in love.
1: It was terrifying. The pain, the, the fear of being eaten. I was drowning at the same time. I just accepted that I was going to die.
2: Was there a bit of fan for you when he came on? Oh, huge. And you know, I did not try to hide. I did not try <laughs> to hide it at all.
3: Out of the Box with Serge Niggas on FBI.
2: Sydney Culture & Music News. If you missed anything she played, you can head to FBIRadio.com to catch up on mornings or any other program here at the station. Now, my guest on the show today is an incredibly accomplished writer and journalist who works for the New Yorker as a staff writer and has spent many years reporting across Africa the experience of which she is now chronicled in a book called A Moonless and Starless Sky, which takes a look at how everyday African women and men are resisting extremism. Her name is Alexis Okeowo, and she's basically one of those amazing people that I've seen speak at the Writers' Festival, so thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Now, look, before we get stuck into, you know, the nitty-gritty of your work, I'd really like to hear about kind of your upbringing, because you are born in the Southern American state of Alabama, which... Is you know one of the birthplaces of the civil rights movement. Yeah, Nigerian Nigerian migrant parents. Can you tell us a little bit about Alabama's history, firstly?
4: Yeah, I mean Alabama is a place that has been the site of probably the most extreme events in the, the history of the United States um, from its founding um, to to the present. Because it, as you mentioned, it's the birthplace of the civil rights movement. Movement. It's also the birthplace of the Confederacy. Um, It's also, you know, where a a lot of progressive things have happened and also a lot of um, hateful things have happened. But it's a place that a lot of groups call home, including my parents, who are both from Nigeria and who ended up in Alabama as students and who met there and decided to call Alabama home and and ended up raising my, uh, me and my brothers there. And so it's a rich place. It's a rich, complicated place. And, w- I mean, what
2: was your childhood actually like? I mean, obviously, you're in a place that is incredibly racially divided. Uh, what was that like as a kid?
4: Well, I mean, the thing is, is that it actually I wasn't that more extreme than I think... Um, uh, than, than other places in the United States. I don't think it's extremist extreme as people um, would perhaps is. expect. Yeah, because it does have that, um, th- that extreme racial history, but um, it's also a place that has evolved in a lot of surprising ways. Um, you know, when I was growing up, um, you know, I, I went to schools that were pretty diverse, um, you know, not to say there weren't racist incidents in my childhood, but I wouldn't say that they were any more so than, you know, other people I know. But, and in fact, I was talking with someone about how because of the racial history of the places like Alabama and the South, the races often lived more closely together mm. than in some um, other cities in the United States, which are often more segregated. Totally. And so there's this kind of forced intimacy among the races um, in, in the South, that has led to you know b- both harmony and conflict sometimes at the same time um, but 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 still growing up there um, it it ha- it did let me I don't know it it did get me thinking about race in a certain way um, it it what sort of way? I think that you know when I was growing up I mean i I was comfortable um. Around white people, and um, or, you know, but I think that you know, I did sense it. As, I did sense a divide, mm. and I felt like it wasn't until I left that I saw. Um, well, I mean, for for an example, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't see many interracial relationships. I didn't see, you know, I people, white and black people were friends. White and black people, you know, lived next to each other. But even still something as basic as, like, an interracial relationship was not something I saw at that time. It's now something I see more when I go back in as, as an adult. But Alabama has always felt like a place where race race relations have kind of moved at a slower pace. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wouldn't say that much slower than the rest of the country, but a little bit slower. And so... You know, it wasn't until college that I saw, you know, really interracial interracial relationships on a, on a wider scale. But at the same time, it's hard because it's hard talking about race there because I don't want it to make it seem like it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's ter- ter- terribly backwards. That, yeah, but it does. It progress does move a little bit slower. Um, but it is moving. So it's it's strange. It's a strange place. And I mean, and then
2: after you know, spending your initial childhood there, you you did move elsewhere. You spent time all over the place tell us about that
4: yeah so um after I left Alabama for college I went to college in the northeast and then after that I after I graduated I moved to East Africa I lived in Uganda for about two years um I was first working as an intern at a state-run newspaper in Uganda and then I stayed another year to freelance and then um and then I ended up kind of picking up the the freelance journalism bug and then from there i moved to cuba for like two weeks (laughs) intentionally for longer but they wouldn't let me stay so then i ended up in mexico for almost two years and then um i moved back to new york for a few years and then i left again and i went to nigeria uh for about three years and during the time i lived in nigeria i was traveling all over the continent um working and kind of spending time in different places And then, and then, in the past couple of years, I come, I've come back to the United States.
2: You're listening to Alexis Koo on Out of the Box here on FBI Radio. Look, we're going to get more stuck into this globe-trotting life that you've lived, and I guess the influence it's had on your life. But we've got to go to the songs like to kick things off because I'm really looking forward to your playlist. What have have you got for us first?
4: Yeah, so. First, I have um, a song from the Alabama Shakes, which I, you know, I love to sort of um, to to praise them whenever I can because even though there's a great musical tr- tradition from the South, um, I feel like contemporary music now. People think of the South; they think of like country music. When there's actually all these great groups like the Alabama Shakes and um, the song is "Sound and Color," and whenever I hear them, I just, you know, I think of home and I think I feel like fondness for home and also the music is just really beautiful.
5: We
2: listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus. And my guest here today is American writer and journalist Alexis Okawa, who is here for the Sydney Writers Festival. But Alexis, you spent years reporting in Africa that we just touched on, and your new book is based off those experiences and focuses on how ordinary men and women are fighting extremism in Africa. And, you know, before you kind of got to that point where, you, where this was something you wanted to focus on, what were the kind of stories that you were doing?
4: Yeah. So when I first moved to Africa, um, I, you know, I was working for a daily newspaper and then I started working for a news agency and I was writing news stories. So, um, you know, there um, there weren't, you know, necessarily a ton of breaking news um, every day when I was in Uganda, which is a relatively um, stable sort of peaceful place. But I was writing, um, yeah, news stories um, about the. Uh, in, in Uganda, a civil war had just ended. And so I was writing about um, the survivors of that war. I was writing sort of environmental, political stories, sort of like short hits, um, talking about um, like the, the major news issues yeah, of the day. The daily grind yeah, sort of stuff. Exactly.
2: And I guess then, yeah, when did you first witness kind of stories that really started to draw you in into this direction of trying to talk about resistance?
4: Yeah. So it was a couple of years. Down the line, that I realized, a doing these um, the sort of daily news grind wasn't the most financially viable <laughs> way of freelancing, <laughs> and then also, I mean, it also wasn't necessarily the most fulfilling either, because I would see stories that um, I would think, oh, it would be so interesting if I could like spend more time with this person and really get to know them, and often these were people doing really extraordinary things. Um, mm. It was they were like activists. Um, Doing incredible work, like um, a gay rights activist in Uganda who was like being threatened with death, but who was um, making amazing progress there, or like you know just people doing really brave, um, interesting things that um, that that showed a, a bigger story about what was going on in their countries, and that was often the type of story that my um, that I could most easily sell too to my editors in the U.S. and the U.K., um, where it was already hard to. To tell stories about Africa, but if you could tell a story through someone who is really fascinating and who can really grab in a reader, you could tell perhaps a bigger story.
2: Well, there's a story that you you speak about in your book about a couple who were, you know, in the uh, captured by the rebels. What are the rebels' the, resistance army? The Lord's resistance army. And, 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 and yeah, I mean, it's a crazy story. Can you can you mm-hmm. please tell us about that?
4: Yeah. So the Lord's resistance army, led by Joseph Kony. Um, for over 20 years, uh, up until about 2006, 2007, were um, wreaking havoc in northern Uganda. They were staging a rebellion, and they were kidnapping tens of thousands of children to be child soldiers. Um, They would kidnap the boys to be child soldiers and kidnap the girls to be the sex slaves of the child soldiers. And so they would pair these so-called couples together. Um, The couples would be forced to be together, have children in captivity, and forced to really share lives together um, as forced soldiers of this rebel group. But then these couples and lots of members of this group started escaping and they would return home. And I write about one such couple that did so. And But the difference is they got home and then they, they decided to reunite with their children and live together as a family while free. And so people in their community are, like, are thinking, you know, to of the woman, why would you decide to reunite with
2: this man you were forced to be with? Essentially as well, she was essentially raped by him.
4: Right, that was their first sexual encounter. That's wild. um, But it's a story about how this couple, um, about the bond they formed in captivity, because they were both forced to to be in the situation, and about the way when they were free, um, them, th- th- both of them deciding to be together, to love each other, was a way to sort of resist the way this rebel group had, decide- had tried to you know, rip from them their identity, their sense of family, their ability to love. Um, and so it's, it's, it's kind of a controversial story, but it's a story that I wanted to tell um, in their words and sort of from their perspective as people who had agency and were trying to take back control of their lives after so much was taken from them.
2: You also mentioned how, you know, in the book that you, I guess, struggle to see God in the conflicts in Africa and, and the trauma. I mean, did that make you question your faith? Do you believe in God?
4: Yeah, I mean, um, that's a good question. I, I do, but I, I think I believe in a God that isn't necessarily involved in, in the day-to-day aspects of our lives because otherwise I just can't wrap my ra- my mind around how that could be possible with a lot of the the things I've reported on, um, you know, it's just hard to reconcile the, um, the idea of a sort of an act of God um, and you know a conflict where the worst things are happening to people and often happening over and over to the same people. You know, that I just can't reconcile that in my mind. And so while I admire some of the people I've written about who are actually are all religious and who are motivated by that strong faith and, and it's what gets them through the day and what gets them through their, their lives, I, it's still hard for me to... To 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 empathise. I can that. imagine. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. It's a very
2: tough thing to deal with. Right. But look, moving on to the music, we're going to get into some more incredible stories the, about people that you've written about. But we're going to choose more music. N- song number two. What are you going to What are you going to chuck on here, do you reckon?
4: Yeah. So um, this next song is by Alison Hines. It's called Roll It, Gal. And um, whenever I hear it, it, reminds me when I first moved to Uganda as a twenty-two-year-old journalist um, and I didn't really know much about Africa and I was new to reporting and you know I just fell in love with this country because it was, it was just it was a song we would hear whenever we went out dancing at night um, and so it just reminds me of like that that energy and like that excitement I felt when I was first starting my career reporting abroad. <laughs>
2: on FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus. My guest here today is American writer and journalist Alexis Akewa. So, look, another story that you've written about that really blew me away was a story about a girl called Aisha from Mogadishu in Somalia, a country that is historically incredibly kind of conflicted. There's been so much war. It's a tough place for women. But Aisha had a love for something that is, in every sense of the word, a, a, you know, an act of resistance to do. Yeah, yeah. What was that?
4: Yeah, Aisha loves basketball and
2: which is a, like you know a basketball is a very american thing right and yeah, it's a absolutely. country that's been you know had conflict with america like that's yeah, it's a pretty wild thing right
4: absolutely and it's also wild that just that just because she loves basketball she is you know threatened um threatened with death for it you know and and and, and um in a lot of Parts of Somalia, um, extremists, conservative clerics, conservative men believe that girls shouldn't be outside in shirts and pants and playing sports, and so by virtue of her doing so and playing in this local basketball league, she gets death threats on the phone in person by people who just can't stand the fact that girls and women you know have it can have agency and be out there and playing sports and 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 Having control of their lives, and so what's remarkable is that these girls aren't activists. They're not trying to be like, oh, you know, we're a role model because they're they're like seventeen years old. They just want to have fun and like hanging out with their friends and boyfriends. Um, but it's still remarkable all the same. And so I just thought it was such an incredible story to go spend time with these girls. Who, I mean, they reminded me of so much. You know, when I was a teenager and like all the concerns and worries I had, um, and. And how they just want to live their lives, and and also that they feel entitled, you know, even though they're living in this country that's pretty broken and that's pretty violent, they feel like they should be able to play sports and like yeah, yeah. live their lives. And
2: it's a really interesting, I guess, a common experience that you'd get across, um, you know, teenagers around the world. Exactly. And obviously, the, the 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 circumstances are very different, but there is something inherently the same there. I guess for you, how. How much did you see that was similar to experiences for say teenagers in countries like Somalia to then teenagers in a place like America?
4: Yeah, that's a good question. Um I think what I saw was that their their dreams and their goals and their and the things they think about are the same as far as like wondering what their futures will be like, you know. Um sort of struggling with their parents over what they want uh, for their lives and what their parents want. You know, Aisha's mother obviously wanted to protect her and keep her sheltered um, from, from, the, from the threats, but Aisha wanted to, to, to go her own way. And I think just that sort of fundamental struggle over of, over who the, who they're going to be and what their lives will be like was just the, the like shared experience I saw among Teenagers in Somalia and teenagers in the country where I'm from—it's just that fundamental, um, that fundamental tension.
2: The and difference th- is, I guess, that you know, Aisha can be killed for doing what she's doing. Well,
4: exactly, exactly. And but at the same time, it's like I think because they're so young, it's not necessarily something that sort of weighs them down Hmm. um whereas you know if if it were me i'd probably you know stop playing basketball because (laughs) i'd be too worried and afraid but i think when you're young and like you know you're you're able to kind of push things to the back of
2: your mind so what sort of legacy do you think that kind of confidence and resistance will leave on a country like somalia
4: yeah i think that it's the most important thing for a country like Somalia because so many people have tried so many things right like foreign interventions um whether military or political and that stuff just doesn't work over and over again the only thing that's keeping Somalia together are its people basically and it's because of people who refuse to go along with the status quo who don't succumb to the force to the um pressure of extremists that, you know and I, I think will keep keep the country together and push it forward. It has to come from the people and it has to come from, you know, people like Aisha who just won't yeah, who won't succumb to the um, extremism.
2: It's such an incredible story. If you want to he- read more about Aisha's story, you can actually go on to The New Yorker and find one of Alexis's articles where she writes about it in depth, and it's I uh, really highly recommend that. But uh, look, moving on to the the music again, the next song you got for us is something from Outkast.
4: Yes. Um, so Outkast is kind of a throwback to my southern roots. <laughs> um, nice. And um, this is a song with Sleepy Round called um, I Can't Wait. And, um, you know, especially now as I'm going, turning my work away from Africa and I'm like going back to the South, and um, the South's a lot, it's all out of my mind right now, yeah.
6: This is dedicated to the lover, to the lover in, in you, you, in you, in, in you.
3: summer, silk in the winter, this is such an art, where do I begin I used to sing tenor, in the church cry, really I was flexing but the girls they were fine. I'm that type of guy that knows subtle signs, when I cuddle mine, she ain't even trying, to look sexy, but even if she was, so what, motherfucker grow up, don't mean to be so abrupt, but that lets me, know that she's a human being, and being human's hard, on the boulevard, girl you got it bad, glad I'm not one, but yet you got it good, you are the hot one, but I'm Andre, Benjamin Andre to be exact, you'd hope to to meet a gentleman one day. Well, this is that. In fact, Dookie introduced us at a show about a year or so ago. I don't know. Mine slips me. I'm in the southern states, you know why all the pimps be dressing all boogie and carrying ugly cups. And yes, you're getting booed if your shit do not get down. And yes, you're getting sued by women who didn't get up out they seat on the bus. And feet shouldn't rust, and beat is a must. And we shouldn't lust, but we do. I'm laughing at the calendars and clocks. Ascot to match the socks. What's in your speaker box, pink and blue? You lollygagging, you're slow poking, you got me open, you're playing with me, darling. I'm not not a toy, as if Anita Baker brings the joy, you're kinder, the tyner, meaning the real McCoy, I can't wait, I can't wait, I can't wait, I can't
6: wait, no, I can't wait, ooh, baby, come on, got plans, plans tonight, plans tonight, plans tonight, plans and I'm gonna get it to the morning, I can't wait to wait until
3: It's too soon, the to line of niggas trying to get in business on the full moon Should I play it cool, and be the one to make the first move Anticipating and contemplating, she got you sprung to shit I'm finna get a mighty middle, what you gonna do? I tell you what, we won't be falling for that one-two Just kicky sex off in the boom-boom if she want to And if she don't, then I'll dial another date That means find another face to replace, cause I can't wait This
6: is dedicated to the
2: You're listening to Out of Box FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus, and my guest here today is American writer and journalist, Alexis Akewa. So, look, there's another young woman that you've written about called Amaka that she's from Nigeria. She's a fashion designer. And there's something that you, you wrote about about her that fascinated me. It was this idea that her interests were in some way subversive for a Nigerian woman. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that to me?
4: Yeah. Um. So, so Amaka and her line, Makio, um, these are extremely beautiful feminine clothes that are tailored to the to the female body and 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 that's something she's obsessed with she's obsessed with the female body with with sex with um, with um, sexuality sensuality the female form and these are just um, topics that are still kind of controversial in Nigeria for as, as far as being um, the, 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 the preoccupations of a woman. Because, you know, as I write in that story, there's still a very patriarchal, conservative view of how women should be and act and think in Nigeria. And 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 she just she just turns all that on its head. And that's what I love about her because when I was living in Nigeria, it was it was often frustrating to to see this kind of double standard of of you know how women are technically supposed to dress, act and and um, p- conduct themselves in public. Um, even though, you know, in private, we all know that, as, as, as Amaka says, you know, people are having sex, people are talking about sex, but there's still this sort of respectability po- politics about the way women should be in Nigeria, and she just doesn't there's, care <laughs> there's a line
2: that she says in there where she says something along the lines of um, I'm, I'm not concerned with like the swinging phallus like i am said by the right. female four right, but I just it's right. just like wow like right. that is such a beautiful way to look at it but <laughs> such a boss and like resisting way to look at it
4: right absolutely yeah and in a way that's a good way she is kind of resisting against that um, that just oppressive patriarchal norm like oh you should be the, the, good, the good little lady you know not talking about sex even though we know we're all doing it <laughs>
2: yeah it's, it's such a funny thing isn't it And i mean like that that social context i guess for women in nigeria when it comes to you know equality as well as sexual freedoms is is that something like i mean nigeria is considered like a more kind of progressive part of africa mm-hmm. in some many ways like at least mm-hmm. economically as well like yeah. is it a place that you see at the forefront of those kind of movements in africa
4: yeah so that's interesting because right at the same at the same time that there is that um, patriarchy. There is pushback on the other side. You know, I think there's a great um, history of, of of women's rights activists um, and people pushing against the norm. But it's still not the mainstream in the way that it is um, in some other countries. Even. Maybe in, in places like South Africa or Kenya, um, but but it's getting there, um, and I think it's part you know part of that will be thanks to designers like Amaka who you know is, is creating clothes where um, shirts you know the um, their outlines around the breasts and like this um, a lot of her dresses are sheer and like you know it's pushing boundaries and people at first were like what what in the world is this but yeah. now a lot of her buyers are Nigerian and. Um, it's
2: an, yeah. it's an awesome story. And I guess moving beyond that as well and looking at the future of, of, of Africa and I guess reporting that too is what are some of the stories that you know uh, exist and are happening in, in Africa that maybe aren't being told yet?
4: Oh, um, I think that, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, again, there are people doing a lot of interesting things on the ground that are kind of eclipsed by the larger narrative. So for example, um, a place like the Central African Republic, where you know all we hear is about is war and like genocide and um, killings, but there are activists on the ground bringing communities together. Um, you know um, Another really interesting story going on right now, which has been covered to some extent um, is the you know impending drought in South Africa. I mean, Cape Town's going dry. And um, they, but I feel like there still haven't been stories sort of examining how it's affecting the most disadvantaged, you know, p- um, poorest people in that city, and um, and how it's really going to be, a, you know, a huge catastrophe. And I think that um, yeah, and then there are also s- so many random stories, you know, um, tech stories uh, in East Africa. Um, you know, I was reading about um, some interesting startups. Um, Yeah, so so many things. Do you think
2: that sometimes, I guess the fact that the way Africa is portrayed in in a journalistic context often Mm -hmm. is around war and famine and Mm -hmm. difficulty and struggle, Mm -hmm. do you think that that's in some way doing Africa a disservice? Do you think that there should be more reporting on the positives coming out of Africa?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's hard because you obviously want to talk about the bad things happening to bring attention. But yeah, I do think there's still space. For more positive stories and it's something I'm always thinking about too because um, you know I am drawn to extreme stories and, I, and what I try to do is tell those extreme stories in different ways like if I'm going to talk about conflict or extremism I'm going to tell it from the angle of people living through it and who are trying to do something about it but at the same time I, I want to write about fashion too you know I want to write about music and the other parts of it so that people don't always think that the worst things are happening on the continent. people aren't still trying to live, you know, enjoy their lives and play basketball and, you know, fall in love and do all of those things. Um, So it's hard because you don't want to tell people you only have to do positive stories, but I think it's something we should all keep in mind.
2: For sure. Yeah. Well, look, moving on to the music again, What yes. you've got a song from WizKid. Tell us about it.
4: Yes. I, you know, speaking of Lagos, um, WizKid is one of my favorite Nigerian musicians. And now this song, um, is about Lagos, um, which is a city I love. And that's a city that's super frustrating, but um, it's very addictive. And so... <laughs> It's
7: legendary beat. my ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Ah, wow. Let me know. Let me know. You You know my story. They know my story. For more dogs to do. i be hustled. Dogs to, do. We've been to work. Yeah, yeah, me yeah. you, we bring horses to walk. Near to a level, my people, dead, my people suffer. Them they pray for blessing. Near yeah, yeah. to a level, well, oh, my people, dead, Them they pray for blessing. For better.
2: This is Out of the Box on FBI Radio, my name is Serge Niggas, and my guest here today is American writer and journalist, Alexis Okewo, who's here for the Sydney Writers' Festival and has just launched an amazing new book. But look, let's go back to America for a minute, because we've been talking about Africa for a while now. And you recently wrote about how in Alabama, you know, the birth of the civil rights movement, the place Mm -hmm. that, you know, it was where it all began in that regard, has recently opened up a memorial to lynching victims which you just wrote about in The New Yorker, which it's a big deal, and I'll get you to explain why. But first, a lot of Australians, I don't think, especially not our audience, which is the younger audience, would know exactly what lynchings were. Mm. Can you explain to us the history of lynchings?
4: Yeah, so um, uh, basically in the um, 19th and 20th centuries, um, thousands of of black men and women were um, often hung in public spectacles, hung from trees, um, and, 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 and extra um, sorry what I'm trying to say they, they, they were hung from trees um, in public spectacles as a way to punish them for all types of sort of petty social transgressions everything from a man walking behind um, the wife of a white man to um, to uh, another man being um, lynched for, 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 for trying to organize black voters to um, a woman being lynched because a mob couldn't find her husband. you know there were so many um, supposed crimes that black men and women were killed for for um, for 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 basically being assumed that they were either guilty or are dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a way for Um, basically white Americans to inflict mass terror on black Americans after slavery ended and black people were living freely. Um, It was a way to try to control the black population and it was um, later being a reason why a lot of black people left the South because a lot of these crimes were happening in the South and moved to the North as part of the Great Migration. And so but a lot of these crimes were buried because the media at the time weren't really covering these crimes often local local law enforcement was in on it. You know, mobs would be able to kidnap uh, black people from jails and then you know drag them out into the streets, burn them, shoot them, and then hang them from trees. Sometimes they would mutilate them and cut off their body parts um, and keep them as souvenirs. Oh. So this was just you know an atrocious uh, and an a, a, this was an atrocious. Occurrence that get happening over and over again, thousands of times. And so, this one group in Montgomery, Alabama, the Equal Justice Initiative, started doing an investigation into these crimes, finding out where they took place, who they happened to, talking to survivors, descendants, and they made a report of some, you know, um, almost 4,500 cases. And then they built a memorial just opened, um, I think it was last week um, in Montgomery that is this incredibly visceral experience um, with over 800 steel columns that kind of resemble headstones. with the names of of many lynching victims, some that just say unknown as a way to memorialize these people whose deaths just kind of faded into the into history,
2: how important is it for you know a, a place like that to exist? because obviously Australia has similar sorts of histories with our right. indigenous population right. Right. but we see very little of those sorts of things happening right. here. Right. How important do you think it is in I guess moving things forward and and, and trying to have some sort of kind of Understanding of these historical events that are so traumatic.
4: I think it's so vital because I think that um, it's so important um, for for the people of any place to confront its history, to, to look at all sides. I mean, just walking through that lynching memorial and being confronted with the racial terror that happened, it does, I think, do something. To, to the to the visitor, to, to people who walk through. And I think that it inevitably makes you think about what's going on in the present and wondering if there's still, you know, a link between what happened. And there often is between what happened in the past and what's happening now. I think both in America and in Australia, there's, an, the, you know, the, the, the past is present. And so these memorials are so important. And I think that you know, it's, it's long overdue. And I think here, you know, it, it's also long overdue because otherwise we tend to sweep things under the rug mm. and we tend to glorify, um, you know, stories of our past that really well, aren't you know that, that rosy. You
2: know that our um, Minister for Finance just recently announced he wants to build a $20 million memorial to Captain Cook. Oh, God. Yeah, like that's the kind of situation that we're in. But right, anyway, right. anyway, getting beyond the ridiculousness of our politics, we'll, we'll <laughs> move, we'll move forward and, and get into some more interesting topics. After this next song, we're going to mm-hmm. talk about cultural appropriation in journalism, which is something that not many people would have heard about, I don't think. So we'll get into yeah. that. But but you got a song from Solange for us?
4: Yes. Uh, speaking of, um, you know, s- speaking of looking back at history, talking about black Black history. Um, well, black history is part of American history and um, you know, I really love Solange's last album which came out at a time when um, the conversation was a lot about US police brutality we're talking about um, black death we're talking about um, how much black lives are really worth in America and um, this great song weary is just talking about in my opinion being black in America I'm just being tired of um, of of a lot of the, the, the black misery that was happening, but also, you know, hoping that it gets better.
8: You feel
2: Been listening to Out of the Box and FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus. My guest here today has been writer and journalist Alexis Akewu, who's here for the Sydney Writers Festival. Who's just released an amazing book about Africa. But look, we were talking before with the break about how there's something that, yeah, really, I don't think many people here would have heard before, which is cultural appropriation in journalism. It's It's something that you hear about in many other forms of the media. But within journalism, it's less common. Explain to us what you mean when you talk about cultural appropriation in journalism.
4: Yeah, what I mean is is that as a reporter, you're basically um, you're basically taking someone's story. When when you're writing about someone or you're writing about a place, you're taking someone's story, and then you're um, basically assuming you know the voice of of authority, and and you're you you have now taken over. Um, story and um, you know are the person telling it and especially with foreign correspondence and going somewhere um, to, to tell the story of a of a community or a people um, whose um, whose story what would have been wouldn't have been available to your audience you become the middleman and so mm. you and, and so in my view you've appropriated that story and you have a responsibility as the appropriator to, to tell it um, Responsibly um, to tell, it ethically to tell it um, with some accountability, and I just think that it's something we have to think more of um, as journalists. Is that you know we do have a lot of power, and the fact that we, um, and and the fact that you know um, someone else's story is in our hands, and we can do with it what, with with it whatever you know we want and how do we tell it in the best way
2: there's a saying in journalism uh, that goes something along the lines of how on the context of how exploitative it can be where it's Mm -hmm. like who's been raped and who speaks english right and it's just a classic thing that a reporter says when they end up in one of these foreign situations i mean how, how true is that that a lot of people are going in there and and are thinking more in the context of them being a reporter than thinking about the context of the place that they're in
4: yeah, you know, I think it's gotten a bit better, but I think that especially um, you know certain deadlines and certain formats encourage reporters to kind of you know often parachute into a place and to kind of find the the most, you know, um, the most efficient way of telling a story, which is finding perhaps someone with the most um, extreme tale to tell, and then telling that extreme, uh, that extreme story, and then not necessarily following up or spending a l- longer time with your subject to find out the other parts of their life beyond that extreme event that happened to them, whether it's rape or you know, whatever else. And so it creates this one-sided view of what could be happening in a place. If you're going somewhere and you're just interviewing the woman who's been raped and the whole story is about that rape without finding out other parts about her life too i mean that's just not that's not her complete story and that's not the complete story of a place but that happens so often
2: i guess a big part of it is is empathy i I mean how possible is it for you know someone to develop empathy for people whose experiences i guess are so different to their own
4: yeah well that's the thing i think it takes time and so i think um Part of that is by a reporter living or at least spending a lot of time in the place so that you're getting to know people from that place and you're seeing how um, it's like to live there and to be there. And um, you know also um, and also even if you're not living there or spending a lot of time there, just sp- spending a lot of time with your subject to-, to find out what you do have in common beyond the-, the many things you don't seem to have in common. And it really just seems to come down to time, I think. Um, spending that time which you know isn't it maybe not always possible but if it isn't then maybe you shouldn't write the story
2: for sure look yeah. Alexis it's been an absolute pleasure having you on yeah. Out of the Box yes. it's about all we have time for except for one last song what, mm-hmm. are, what are you going to play for us to finish things yes. up
4: yes um, I would want to end I think with with the internet um, special Fair.
2: amazing thank you so much again Alexis big thanks to my producer Nicole DiPaolo and I'll be back next week see ya <laughs>
6: Never been to a party before. I don't know what to say, but I couldn't let you.